This is an ABC podcast. Hello once more, welcome to The Minefield. Try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life. Faleed Ali is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-host. And is it fair to say, Scott, I mean, obviously last week we uh, appropriately devoted the show thematically to NAIDOC week. Mm -hmm. But for that, we would have done this week's show last week. I think it's fair to say in the aftermath of the US election, because there's just so many, is questions the right word? Issues the right word? Conundrums, perhaps, for public society for democracy and so on that get raised by that result, mm-hmm. such as that result is. And indeed, what it means, I think, is massively up for grabs. So uh, we sort of haven't been able to contain ourselves <laughs> to, to revisit that result and see what we can make of it. Yes, we're, we're not delaying this week with any sense of regret about what we talked about last week. No, I, thought, no, no, no. I, I mean, seriously, what kind of, what other show than The Minefield can we talk about Plato, Aristotle, Aboriginal political philosophy, and whether or not John Stuart Mill is canonically liberal? Uh, I just <laughs> thought that was, that kind of had everything going for it. Yeah. Look, um, Walid, I've, I've had, I'll confess, over the last couple of weeks, I've had lines from Bob Dylan rummaging around in my head the way, you know, he well, often... Like every other d- week, you mean? Does just like every other week. There is no success like failure, and failure is no success at all. Uh, I, I've been thinking that there are various ways to interpret the election results that could well see the Democrats come away from this election as the losers, and maybe not Republicans, but at very least something we might want to call Trumpism emerging from this election as a winner. In other words, this election, it is far, I think, I mean, it's obviously narrower. The results were narrower than most people were expecting. But I also think the results are such that, and the political climate in which those results have emerged are such that, Trumpism may well emerge as a real, not just a potent force within Republican politics, but a potent voting block uh, in all future, or at least you know, future elections for the foreseeable future, uh, but also depending on the way that Biden Democrats play their hand and the way in which they govern from here on in, uh, they may well emerge as real losers from this particular election. It just it just strikes me, Waleed, that, you know, there is something historic, and I don't think anybody wants to take it away from Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. There is something historic that took place here. Incumbency is a very real force within American politics. Donald Trump is now only the third president since the Second World War to lose after one term, the other two being Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush. And we should so there is George H.W. Bush comes off the back of Republican years. So it's not, yes. it's very different to the Trump situation where it's eight years of Democrats and then he only gets one run at it. And then no, that's out. exactly right. And there's also an argument to be made that Jimmy Carter's loss, that represents a kind of hiatus as the result of the damage that Watergate did to the Nixon and then Ford presidential years. And so that there was a kind of return to certain trends that were already well and truly in place in the early 70s when Reagan gets elected in 1980. So, you know, there are all sorts of additional factors there. But I think it's fair to say, is it not, that this presidential election, 2020, this presidential election was a referendum on Donald Trump. Are you asking me that or are you telling me that? 
Well, I suspect that it is. Let's let, let me go to you though. I mean, do you think Trump is the decisive factor on both sides of this particular election result? I think he's a major factor. I, I'm wary of um, boiling election results down to something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think of a good way of explaining that. But, you know, it, I've sort of referenced this in stuff I've written about it since, but the the surprise over what's called the Latino vote, for example, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and particularly in Florida where Biden was comprehensively smashed by Latino voters. I don't think that had anything to do with being a referendum on Trump. I think, you know, that aspect of the result, and it's just one of a million aspects of the result, that aspect of the result, I think, was much more to do with the effectiveness of Donald Trump's campaign in trying to paint Joe Biden into a socialist corner with Cuban and Venezuelan Americans who, for very obvious and understandable reasons, are petrified of any kind of notion of socialism. So I don't think the character of Donald Trump or the person of Donald Trump really figures very largely in those sorts of votes. And I suspect if you broke down the electoral result at that sort of granular level, I think you would see a whole lot of other things emerge that mean it's not as simple as a referendum on Donald Trump. But I'm not denying the real, like the significance of that element of it. It is interesting, though, to me there, Wally, that you did distinguish quite carefully and I think rightly between Donald Trump's character and his person at this point. I mean, I think it is probably fair to say, given the sheer magnitude of the electoral turnout, I mean, the electoral turnout is something else. I mean, 66 percent is the greatest in a century. There was a form of mass mobilization that took place on both sides. I think you're right that... Not all those who voted Republican voted for Trump, if we can put it that way. But I think we can at least say that some of the presidential, personal, moral, and administrative deformities that Trump has demonstrated in spades over the last four years, they were either – I'm just – I need to be careful how I say this. They were either regarded by a sufficient number of Americans as – not just a bug, but a feature. In other words, this was something about the Trump presidency and about the Trump mode of governance that they liked. It wasn't something they had to overcome in order to vote for him, but it was Mm. something they actively liked about his style of presidential politics. Or for those who also voted for, voted Republican, they simply didn't see that character, those deficiencies of administrative competence uh, or of rectitude, they didn't see that as necessarily disqualifying him. Now, I suspect that a big part of that is his, what they perceive as his handling of the economy, which they continued to give him a great deal of credit for, despite the current pandemic conditions. In other words, there was a proper separation that was made between the economy outside of pandemic conditions and the tanking of the economy within but all that, pandemic But all that points to the idea that it wasn't simply a referendum on Trump. Uh, well, well, see, this is where I think I'd want to push it a little bit further, though, because even if you think that his style of presidential politics is not a bug but a feature, and even if you think that his style of presidential politics doesn't disqualify him from governance, I do think there is enough of that at play here and that he himself looms large enough in this election and in its aftermath that I think there is still enough of an aspect of this election as a referendum that we can't simply dismiss it all. No, no, I'm not trying to dismiss it. 
I just I just think that trying to make it one dimensional in that way is apt to mislead. Okay. And okay. I don't I'm not trying to be picky when I say that by the way. I, I think it's worth pausing over things like that because I think it's the failure to pause over things like that that has led to such bewilderment at various aspects of the results. Yeah, yeah right. that is entirely right. So That's right. the idea that how could people of colour vote for Donald Trump in larger numbers than they did previously? Well, that, that strikes me as the kind of mistake you make when you stop asking questions about the world as it is and you start imposing upon it the overlay of a particular worldview and a particular ideology that's rooted in identity politics and positions Donald Trump as being nothing more than racist mm-hmm. and people of colour as being nothing more than people of colour and mm. a sort of a politically meaningful and coherent block of people rather than actually a hugely differentiated people yes. for whom racism and issues of racism mean wildly varying things and take on different degrees of importance, right? I think that's absolutely vital to say, and it's also important to point out uh, that the resonance that Black Lives Matter or that calls to defund or to abolish the police, the resonance that that had among Latino voters, I think, was presumed in advance rather than really. Well, yes. And what's fascinating about that is um, for something else entirely that I was researching, I came across this sort of murmuring amongst Democrat circles that Black Lives Matter rhetoric was actually scaring off Latino voters. Yes. But they didn't dare articulate it because of the culture that was surrounded that moment around the George Floyd killing, which meant that if you said anything like that, you would be attacked for it as being on the side of white supremacy, effectively. Um, It is also worthwhile out in the actual election that that's what happened. Yeah, I think that's right. It is also worth pointing out that not just social conservatism, but also, of course, uh, conservative Catholicism plays a very, very, very large role. Again, not in an undifferentiated way among Latino voters, but particularly, particularly in South Florida, in portions of uh, Texas and New Mexico, uh, and in portions of the Northwest. So, you know, it's, it's kind of shameful that we didn't give that kind of granular attention Uh, before the election that we did in the aftermath. Can I just mention one thing? I'm really eager to get to our guest, but there is one other thing. Um, You you asked me a question two weeks ago when we had our election day discussion about whether or not I saw the turnout itself as hopeful and uh, democratically hopeful. And I answered quite enthusiastically, yes. And I still feel that way. I mean, I think the fact that turnout was what it was when there are two great factors in American political life, namely almost a total historical absence of protest voting. (laughs) If you don't like your candidate, you don't turn out. If you feel lukewarm about your candidate, you don't turn out. But you don't turn out in order to vote out somebody else. I think there's something very, very different happening here. Especially in a pandemic. Especially in a pandemic. I think there is something really, really important. But I've been thinking a lot ever since you asked that question about why is it that I feel – I mean, I, I, think that, I think that the health of democratic culture, I think the extent to which people truly do participate in democratic decision-making uh, and in democratic legitimacy, I think all those things are very important. I think the extent to which there are coalitions, there are forms of political friendship that are discovered in the very act – of engaging morally and then voting. I think all these things are unalloyed goods. But there is something that's kind of, that's been bugging me about this. Is this the first great election in an era of mass political mobilization? 
there's something about this, and I think this was beginning to con- be consolidated for me in a piece that I read in The Guardian by the sociologist William Davies, where he said that this election wasn't really a presidential election. It was a yes-no referendum. It was a straight up and down victors versus losers with no compromise being brooked in the aftermath type election. Yep. And that reflects then the kind of mass social media mobilization and the, last civ- the, the mass civic mobilization that we saw people getting out of it, people getting their neighbors to show up and to participate. So while I think that this kind of mass participation is a very good thing, the fact that the result ended up being, okay, despite the electoral college, which has given Biden and Harris a very, very healthy outcome, I think. And despite the popular vote, which again put them ahead by between five, six million votes in the popular count. It's still a compromised result, isn't it? Because they, it lose, still they a- lose in the seats in the House and they may not have the Senate at all. Uh, they certainly won't have it with the kind of supermajority that Barack Obama did. Uh, and so there's no clear validation of a democratic worldview here. No, there's not. But also when you have that degree of mass mobilization, the result itself cannot but feel like a zero-sum game. And so I think there there are all these factors that are playing around the result that make us feel, make us suspect that post-election divisions in America may well be, well – Incommensurable. So I've, I've, when we're playing with a thesis that we might tease out in the rest of the show, if you are mm-hmm. interested, that America is now post-democracy. No. No? I mean, you don't I'm, want to play I'm fine for us to discuss that, Yeah, but I'll argue. And I think the turnout doesn't point to democratic yes. health at all. In fact, I think it might point to the opposite once you look at the results. Or this might be a passing moment, but if it isn't, then I think America's in serious trouble in democratic mm. terms. Anyway... Wow. Let's play with that, shall we? This is The Mindfield. You can listen to the show on RN. We might be doing that right now. You can catch us anytime on the ABC Listen app if you like, if that's more convenient for you. But you can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you do such things, and it comes with extra content because, as you've no doubt deduced just from listening to this show, we have far more to say than the time allows us to say. Um, Now we have a guest to help us out, Scott. Indeed, we do. Jennifer Hunt is a lecturer in national security at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University in Canberra. Jennifer, thank you so much for joining us on The Minefield. You're welcome and hello. The very fact that we've been talking about Trump and the Republican side of this election, I think, says some interesting things about the outcome and about the condition of American politics after this election. Something I want to put to you in advance, though, I'm hoping maybe you can help us inflect this conversation a little bit. There was a kind of truce that prevailed on the Democratic side throughout the campaign between centrists and progressives. Uh, There wasn't a great deal of sniping or of undermining that took place of Joe Biden or Kamala Harris throughout the campaign. But now that it's done and now that the result, especially in the House, wasn't quite what Democrats hoped for, recriminations are now beginning about who's to blame. Is it the centrists, the moderates, or is it the progressives? Why don't you kick us off here, Jennifer? On the Democrat side of things, what are we to make of now the recriminations and the calls for what a Biden presidency now needs to do? So I think your point about the coalition is is very valid. This was a very broad church This coalition also included former Trump officials. I think we tend to forget that. There were lots of former Trump appointees, uh, members of his administration, that came out and formally endorsed Biden. 
781 national security officials signed a letter doing exactly the same thing, that have you know, been part of multiple administrations, uh, including 73 very high-ranking Republicans. Hmm. And so I think if we put it simply in partisan terms, we miss just how broad that coalition is. And of course, there's going to be disagreements within any party about what direction policy goes, but it's it's too early, and I think, in fact, quite premature to do a post-mortem of this election when, in fact, the Democrats have won with the highest turnout, as you said, in 100 years. And this is with some very structural challenges that had to be overcome. I, I agree with Walid. I think the turnout is a response to obstacles that were put in the way of voters. I think we tend to forget that in Australia. You know, there's no democracy sausages uh, that are happening in the United States. Some states don't have early voting. Some states made mail-in ballots very difficult, even in the middle of a pandemic. This is only the second presidential election we've had without the protections of the Voting Rights Act, which meant that if states wanted to make changes, purge people from the voting rolls, move polling places around, there was very little judicial oversight that we're used to when we're comparing more recent administrations. Yeah, the... <laughs> Oh, there's so much there. The voter suppression side of American politics, I think, is... It, this is part of, I think, what my post-democracy thesis is about, is that I fear that what we're witnessing is a nation that is now moving towards the rituals of democracy. So you turn up every two years, if you want to add midterms, but most relevantly every four years and you go through this thing and you have primaries and there's this sort of festival that surrounds it. But all of the underlying substructure of democratic life is withering away. Voter suppression is part of that. I know it's been going on for a very long time, but it feels like it's reaching just a level of shamelessness now that, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you disagree with that, Jennifer, but it just feels so brazen now that it's, it's undermining any kind of commitment to democratic principles. The way Donald Trump has handled his defeat, of course, is part of that, but I'm prepared to accept that that's partly just his own personality. But it's the absence of deliberation. I mean, even in the way that you've described their ex-Trump allies who then came out and endorsed Biden, yes, but that itself speaks to a kind of position of zero-sum game, my team, your team, which I think Trump kind of inevitably leaves in his wake, but which I also think is an expression of what's been building in the United States for a very long time. And so I guess what I'm wondering is, absent the election, what's democratic about America now? The, the level of polarization that we are seeing in this result, this is why I resist the idea that this result is somehow a repudiation of Trump. A repudiation would have looked like you know, 1964 when Goldwater was <laughs> destroyed. That would have been a repudiation. <laughs> this is not a repudiation. In fact, the Republican Party walks away from here thinking, what do we do with this movement that has delivered us 70 million votes, <laughs> that has delivered us the second most votes of a president to a presidential candidate in the history of the union? What do we do with that? And the Democrats are walking away with, well, we won with this centrist candidate who has ignored the sort of Ocasio-Cortez version of Democrat life and specifically rejected some, you know, the defund the police sort of element of Black Lives Matter on their way to the White House and now has to negotiate a mixed government setting with Congress that's going to mean that they tack, they have to inevitably tack towards a, a centrist path. What do we do with all this? And I think what it reflects is that the polarization is now so deep and embedded that there's no conversation that can take place. 
there just kind of isn't. There will be different results at the margins. That means that someone gets to sit in the White House one time and someone else another time. But I'm struck by how little seems to shift anything. And when you have that, it seems to me that you don't have a democracy. What you have is sort of the rituals of democracy alloyed to something that is different to democratic life. I think one key indicator to watch is not just participation in democracy in terms of voting, but in terms of running for office, because that displays a bit more commitment than, as you said, every couple of years showing up, casting a ballot. And what we saw as a continuation of the trend from the 2018 midterms is very non-traditional groups stepping up, running and winning for office, even as newcomers. And as we've said, incumbency has a lot of privileges in the American system. So on the back of that 2018 midterm, which is in itself the highest midterm turnout in 100 years, Mm. you had people running for office from uh, the nursing community, from the scientific community. You had physicians, and you also had intelligence analysts. Now, this was very interesting. This is typically a group that shies away from politics, really likes to preserve its anonymity. But you had several candidates stepping forward to say, no, I identify the Trump administration as a threat to everything I was taught to look for when I'm investigating the international landscape for threats. And what's interesting is that all of those groups that I just mentioned running for office, almost all of them were running as Democrats. Now, on the Republican side, you've got a new kind of diversity, which I think is particularly worrying. And that's the mainstreaming of conspiracy theorists into the party. Mm. Now, this isn't a surprise because Trump started his political campaign with a conspiracy theory, right, about about Obama, right? He continued about climate change and pandemic. However, this is the first election where we have QAnon candidates that have won office. They, They were formally endorsed by the White House. And their perception of the Democratic Party completely precludes bipartisanship. So the QAnon conspiracy theory says that the opposition is a secret cabal of pedophiles. This is from the Pizzagate hoax in which, you know, actually a guy actually showed up to D.C. armed to liberate these children in a basement that didn't exist and got four years in prison after he terrorized a child's birthday party. But the problem is that these new adherents in the Republican Party, these new elected officials, will not compromise with Democrats because they see them as a satanic cabal. It's it's very different to, to just partisanship. And it's what Ornstein calls asymmetric polarization, that one party has, you know, perhaps moved a little to the left, but not in terms of its international peers. Healthcare and voting rights shouldn't have to be something that you fight for in a developed economy. But you see the the right moving much more to the right. And that's the asymmetric polarization that's going to impact not just this presidential administration, but the next few. Look, Jennifer, I think that's incredibly important. And this is why I probably have a little bit more hope here than Waleed. I mean, I'm, I share with Waleed completely the concern about the underlying democratic culture here. And I think that the, the overlay or even the shroud of certain democratic rituals cannot in any way substitute for the underlying democratic culture. I think that's absolutely right. But to my mind, it is significant. It is incredibly important, not just the coalition that's been formed here. And I 
nurture, I'll confess, certain hopes that Biden appoints a number of Republicans <laughs> uh, to his cabinet. I think there would be something really, really remarkable about that and go a long way towards healing certain uh, gaping political wounds. But to my mind, it is important that not just a consensus or a compromise candidate, but a principled centrist candidate was the one who has not just won, but has also carried Georgia and Arizona, and that also has campaigned on a platform of trying to restore some of those fundamental underlying habits and democratic virtues that cultivate the conditions within which democratic morality can be exercised. So to my mind, there are signs of hope here, but there is great, there's a lot more agency, I think, uh, in the Biden-Harris presidency than maybe a number of Democrats uh, say more progressive Democrats on uh, in the Democratic Party uh, are giving them credit for. I don't think he simply ran as a neutral candidate. I think there is an inherent virtue in running uh, that Biden ran as the candidate that he did uh, and now in the form of governance to which he's pledged. So I think, I mean, Walid, I think your point is right. I don't think the outlook is quite as gloomy as you think. Scott is Piglet. I am Eeyore, as always. Right. Uh, <laughs> seems to be the case. Jennifer, hang around because um, this is the end of the radio portion, but your job is not yet done. We will get more from you at no extra pay, if that's okay. So, uh, that's Jennifer Hunt, lecturer in national security at the Crawford School of Public Policy at the ANU. Our guest for this week's edition of The Minefield. We're done on the radio. We will continue going on on the podcast. I've got a feeling it's going to be a good one. So if you are, subscribe to the podcast, stick around, and if not, we'll see you next week. Um, so, Jennifer, can I just return to the point that you raised uh, about those new congressional representatives, uh, House representatives who won in 2018 and have uh, retained their seats? I mean, one of the more remarkable ones for me is Abigail Spanberger uh, in, in Virginia. Mm-hmm. I wasn't trying to either invite you or to goad you into a post-election post-mortem, but it has alarmed me, I'll confess, the outbreak of dissent, especially among House Democrats, about what the Biden achievement means or why they lost the seats that they lost or why they didn't gain more of the votes than they did. Do you think that there is, in fact, a governing mandate that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have received, a mandate for a particular form of governance, not just that they got in as a kind of we're not Trump or on the anti-Trump ticket. Do you think there's a positive mandate that's gone along with this? Or do you think they've inherited basically a blank slate? And as long as they're not Trumpish in their legislative or governing styles, uh, then they basically now can do what they want. I think the closest thing to a mandate, and I hesitate to use that word, but I think the general agreement is around healthcare. And particularly in a pandemic, this has become incredibly important. Remember, in the American system, when you lose your job, you lose your healthcare insurance. And so the conflation of healthcare, economic insecurity, and public health are inherently complex and interrelated, particularly in the American system. So I'd say on the back of the 2018 midterm, which we know was driven by healthcare concerns, and we know that because Republicans who had formally voted against the Affordable Care Act 
ran ads saying how they would support pre-existing conditions, which are inherent part of that package. So they recognized that it was a salient topic and has broad bipartisan support. This has become even more obvious as this tragic natural experiment of COVID-19 has swept the world. Americans are now very aware of how much better other systems have dealt with this. And it's through their healthcare system. It's through the financial support. And we've, we've passed those bills in the House, even with that broad coalition. Remember, 500 bills have been passed under that new Congress over the last two years. And only a fraction of them have even been heard in Mitch McConnell's Senate. Now, half those bills were passed on a bipartisan basis. So I don't want to I don't want to sweep everything into this partisan lens when we have progress on these broader issues on a bipartisan basis in the House. True, except, uh, well, I was about to cite polling and then I realised that's a dangerous <laughs> thing to do. Survey data suggests that your attitude towards even the pandemic yeah. is highly partisan. It's true. So... One of the more striking features of the election result, I think, for a lot of people watching at a distance, was how is it possible that the president who presided over nearly a quarter of a million deaths even got close? You know, how, how did it reach a point where that level of sort of world-leading incompetence on probably the most serious event that will arrive in the lives of most of the voters... Right. Oh, please, please see my published report on that, Waleed. Um, yeah. Uh, so a couple of months ago, I was approached by the Global Health Security Network, which is based out of Sydney, to write a report on my work on disinformation uh, and apply a security lens to disinformation around COVID. And it talks about exactly this, how masks became political. They became partisan. And that was down to elite cues from the White House. It was due towards your particular information diet. They can trace viewership of specific shows on Fox News and then the actions that people took or didn't take to protect themselves and others. So that death toll, even that you mentioned, is rarely put into context for American audiences. If you're watching Fox News or you're listening mm -hmm. to Rush Limbaugh, AM radio, 20 million listeners every week. And that number is seen to be inflated. There are so many conspiracy theories floated around about the pandemic, its origin, its severity and the efficacy of mitigation efforts. So a lot of the story that we would know and assume is fact is actually not reaching a lot of people in the American system. Right. And this is part of my post-democracy thesis, is that America's become a post-factual society. Now, I, I appreciate that's a very broad statement and you'll pick it apart justifiably for generalization, but you get the thrust of what I'm saying here. And once you become post-factual, you become post-democratic because democracy proceeds on the assumption that there is at least a loose agreement on what the facts are and what we're disagreeing about is what they mean and what we should do in response to them. Once you have that level of polarization, I, I wrote that polarization, we need a better word actually, because polarization kind of feels like people who just disagree vehemently. It's more than that. They're, they're inhabiting different planets. Mm. And when that happens, there's no exchange, there's no room for movement. And so even I mean, I just think this is worth noting, right? Scott has invited you to talk about an area of genuine bipartisanship. You've nominated healthcare, and yet immediately when it comes to the biggest health crisis in the world, and especially in the United States, we run into this level of just incommensurate polarisation. 
Absolutely. We're in the post-truth age, right? That was the word of the year in 2016. And we forgot that word. It's amazing that we (laughs) dropped that word because it's the most important word, I think, of the Trump presidency was Mm. post-truth. This is why- Sorry. Sorry, Waleed. Can can I just- uh, we've done shows about this. You know how I feel about this. I, I think the idea of polarization is not really describing the character of the moment. Something far more like epistemological and moral fracture. It's I think it's probably catchy, getting. Is it? Yeah, it's it's true. But I do think it's it, it's worth saying that that the only way that we get to the point where we can inhabit these different epistemological and moral universes is if we first recognize. That what political disagreement, so much political disagreement comes down to is not so much – historically, is not so much disagreement at the level of fact but disagreement at the level of value. So at what level of priority, of moral urgency, of moral or ethical or even emotional intensity do I register things like poverty or abortion? No, but that's not what Jennifer's describing. I know that. But we reach the point of being able to be in a universe that can be described as po- – or being in a polity that can be described as post-truth when one side regards the way in which the other side has valued certain concerns or certain principles as being effectively either inconsequential or beneath contempt. So the way that we get to this particular point is by one side losing the fundamental democratic virtue of both hearing one another, I mean really, truly attending to the way in which one side places or registers or accounts for their particular moral intensity and then tries to find ways in which maybe the edges of that disagreement can be rubbed off through the legislative process and through official forms of compromise or institutions that kind of mediate those forms of compromise. I think what's happened is that because our level of disagreement at the level of value has been ramped up to the intensity that it has, that has created the fracture whereby, and I do think there's something bipartisan about this, where the other side need not be attended to, and all that matters is that our side wins. When that happens, that's when you then descend into this epistemologically fractured universe. And so I think even framing it that way, instead of descending into the muck of post-truth, that also holds out, I hope, I believe, Something like a degree of democratic hopefulness that maybe that kind of attendance to the moral energy that another person brings to our our democratic culture or our common life, that then maybe hopefully points to a something like a better direction. Look, Jennifer, do you see that attendance? I would say that that's only possible in open and transparent democratic debate, and that's not what we see happening. We see – micro-targeted ads where if you are not the subject of that ad on Facebook, you will never see it. You'll never see that discourse. You'll never be able to refute it with facts. You'll never be able to have a healthy democratic discourse about values or topics or facts or policy because it's happening in the shadows. And so it's, it's very difficult to reach people when we see algorithms, you know, primed for engagement, right? Rather than accuracy. And yep. as we know, BS is highly engaging. Yep. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's exactly that is, right. Uh, just to add to that, though, we should acknowledge that Trump's BS was highly engaging to a television audience and to television executives in the first instance, yeah, who decided to provide the kind of platform that made him, his, you know, his political phenomenon popular. So I, I, no one is a bigger critic of social media than me, at least no one I've met, and the algorithms that lie beneath it. But the mainstream media or the traditional media, um, legacy media, whatever term you want to use, I think has its share 
of blames that go around? Oh, oh, absolutely. And my research always takes into account how some of these narratives might originate online, but then they're mainstreamed through those traditional sources, television, radio, and of course, in the example of The Apprentice, you know, that's just entertainment and profit. Hmm. But it can be used for permanent division. If you've had a look, and I don't recommend this, at the Trump store. Now, this is a taxpayer-subsidized store that's selling merchandise. Normally, you'd expect to see any sort of, you know, like a team shop, you know, go our team. But what you see on the Trump website is incredibly divisive and fracturing. So, they sell onesies that say, uh, I cry less than the Democrats. Uh, They sell the pin that Trump used to change a hurricane forecast map to his liking. And they sell the pin that says, set the record straight. They've got, you know, Hillary for prison buttons dating back to 2016. So this type of profiting and merchandising, whether it's for entertainment or uh, political gains, is incredibly damaging. It's a really interesting phenomenon, actually, that radical politics enters the body politic via humor in so many ways now. This is is happening on the far right, especially, right? It's funny memes that then become very unfunny politics. That's fine. Yeah, and and I, then everything everything becomes a joke as well. So you saw yeah. Pompeo talking about, of course, there'll be a transition to the second Trump term. And everyone and everyone saying, well, that that's just a joke, except that a threat told with a smile yeah, isn't a joke. It's still a threat. Yeah. But, but, yeah I, no, no, absolutely. Absolutely right. I'm not disagreeing with that at all. And I don't want to descend in anything like moral equivalence here. But I'm sorry, Waleed. I mean, we have talked for years about the corrosive effect of left-wing satire. I'm not. No, I. Hey, I'm with you on that. So I, you know I, what? The next thing I was going to ask Jennifer <laughs> wasn't about satire, although I think that's a really important part of it. But what then do we make of the people who took to the streets immediately with signs shouting "You're fired" hmm. at the president? Now, it's funny. It was an immediately funny response. There was a build-up build on social media, from what I could gather, well beforehand, that everyone was ready to tweet, you're fired, right? So this had been building up. I get the humor of it. I get it's clever. I get all that. But what does it tell us? This is a problem. Does it worry you, Scott? Well, yes, because that is also simply one step removed from, and again, we've talked about this before. You know that I've got no truck with Trump, but I thought the responses on the part of many of the left to the 2016 election from banners saying, not my president, through to the way that Russian interference was, I think, I, I think far too much blame was sheeted home to Russia. The Russian steel dossier, in order to, the reliance yeah, on yeah, yeah, in order to In order to explain away the result that those who voted didn't really, it wasn't enough to carry it. And therefore, those who voted need not be taken seriously. It it seems to me that the not my president response after 2016 begins to create or cultivate the environment in which people now on the opposite side of the political spectrum can be saying uh, voter fraud, stop the steal and so forth. Jennifer, I'd love for you to respond to that. But I also can I just put one other thing to the two of you? I'm so glad we're having this conversation about the culture in which this is taking place. I've been monumentally impressed by the New York Times' reporting of the Trump presidency over the last four years. Uh, 
I think uh, far more so than the Washington Post, uh, which I think has been far too militant, far too chest-beating, and in many respects, I think even corrosive to the underlying democratic culture. I think the measure, the prudence, the attempt at something like nonpartisan or bipartisan reporting, the attempt to measure their findings and to engage in the best forms, I think, of judicious, careful, attentive reporting, I think that has all been incredibly important and, and admirable and commendable. At exactly the same time, their opinion pages have become, with the odd exception, as in, say, a Tom Cotton op-ed, the opinion pages have continued to go down the same incommensurably polarized or sort of left-wing virtuous critiques of Trump and the lack of any kind of proper attendance to those on the other side of the spectrum. I'm wondering as well, well, Lady, you talked before about uh, the culpability of the mainstream media. I think even when there's been very, very good reporting, I think the way in which opinion pages have continued to increase or to exacerbate the divide, even in very significant and I think morally important outlets like the New York Times. And the way in which they're the heroes of these newspapers now. And they're the heroes. They're invariably at the top of the most read sections um, that appear at the bottom of these websites. So I think there's something also here about maybe curtailing the way that we do opinion writing that has also got to be part of anything like a post-2020 recovery. I'll jump in on the you're fired. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, it's all it's a smorgasbord I reckon Jenna just go all you can eat of course for the uninitiated that was Trump's signature line on The Apprentice whenever he dismissed a contestant and I think to see that snapshot devoid of context is unhelpful the last four years starting with the day after Trump's inauguration uh, you might recall that was the Women's March this was mm. the largest peaceful protest in D.C. history, over 500,000 people, not a single arrest. And those marches were followed by equally peaceful marches, like the March for Science. And of course, we know about those in Australia because Australia is the first off the mark for the international dateline and normally started these parades first. And the response from the Trump administration, from Fox Media, was that these were anarchists, communists, and paid protesters. The complete delegitimization of peaceful protest was culminated in the attack on peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square mm. in DC, where protesters were gassed. And of course, Australia saw this live on breakfast television as its own reporters were caught up as Trump tear gassed the clergy off their own church grounds to hold a photo op. And the military responded with a bit of reflection after that. Uh, Mattis broke his silence about the Trump administration. Uh, Several other high-ranking officials posed personal and heartfelt apologies to the American public. So I think it's the delegitimization of peaceful protests that people are now responding to with these, you're fired. Okay, we can get back to normal business where the press isn't the enemy of the people, where we can have peaceful protest and, and petition for grievances. Yeah, I, th- I think that's all right. The question, though, and I'm not denying a, a symbiosis here or even – I may even happy to entertain an argument of Trump being the sort of seminal factor in this and the ultimate cause if you want to use that sort of heavy language. But the question is whether or not the, the dynamic that is now in play 
is one that blocks any kind of meaningful exchange. Sure. And I would say the response by officials is much more important than the response by regular citizens who hold very little power over policy formulation in other people's lives. So if we look at the institutional blockages that are now happening under the Trump White House, refusing to allow access to the president-elect, uh, refusing to release resources that are, you know, legislated. This is There's a transition presidential act. So we see that institutional obstruction and peaceful transfer of power, which Trump, which Trump promised uh, that he wouldn't abide by. So I think I think that's what people are responding to. People are are frightened. They're scared. They're relieved. And we saw this on a global scale. And how they how they choose to enact that, as long as it's peaceful, I think is is in keeping with the democratic tradition. Yeah, but is it supportive of democratic culture? I suppose is my point. So I, I'm not saying they've done something that violates some sacrament, mm. but it's more. I guess it speaks to the polarization. I'm trying to find a better word for. Well, can I suggest here, Waleed, that to the degree that Democrats and those who opposed Trump's re-election can encourage those on the losing side of this election to experience the election result as a form of grief, not as an occasion for anger or mm. hatred, the better the outcome for the democratic culture as a whole might be. And I and there I think Jennifer, every citizen, everyone who jumps on social media has a particular obligation to ensure that that response from one's political opponents isn't given reason to tip over into hatred or anger or contempt. Absolutely. I think we all have a responsibility to put out smoldering embers as we see them, as we would in any bushfire, but we have to remember who's lit this match. Mm. Actually, do we? <laughs> because, no, I, I, well, yeah. You don't have a responsibility. <laughs> I, well, I'm not, I'm not trying to be difficult, but I, I wonder. So once a bushfire is going, is it helpful to be focused on who lit the match? I, I oh, don't wow. know that that's true. It might be true. Like, I, I'm not dismissing your point. Um, and I'm certainly not dismissing the criticism of Trump. I think it's fairly obvious. I have offered several of them myself. But I just the issue here of The issue here of responsibility and culpability. And, and of uh, creating a common future. So Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I suppose my question would be for people who are celebrating Trump's political demise, is what exactly, and they might have good answers for this, by the way, what exactly are they inviting the people who feel that they have lost to? So not what is their victory dance, that's obvious, but what are they inviting people to mm. other than- You know we have, you know we have 35 seconds left, right, Willie? <laughs> oh, sorry, is this the like, point where- you launched a five-minute monologue, is that what happened? <laughs> <That's right. laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry about that. I got lost. But I guess that's how stimulating what you were saying was, Jennifer. You've completely gazumped me in that way. So thank you. It's been great to have access to you today. You can today. follow that up on, on the next show then. We're going to have to. Oh, my God. It's part three of the US election. A <laughs> little um, go on until the 20th of January. So there'll yeah, be I suppose that's right. Thank you so much. Great to talk. Indeed. Uh, looking forward to the next installment. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. You can discover more ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.